You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. serving the Lord Christ. This is the word of God. Good evening, Mercy View. Great to be with you uh, again this week, two weeks in a row. Uh, My name is Trey. I am a church planning resident here at Mercy View. Um, And tonight, get to do something a little bit different. Um, I think this is the first time I've had a chance to actually preach a message that's not in one of the series that we are currently walking through. Um, and as we just come to the end of the year, uh, the calendar had it set to be just kind of a standalone. So I'm excited we get to talk about um, something that uh, has been on my heart for uh, quite a while, just uh, thinking about how um, the gospel relates to our work, to, it is, uh, to what we do. Um, and that's something that's immensely important, and I don't think it's something that we necessarily uh, spend a, a ton of time thinking about. Um, and, and oftentimes, I think maybe we, we can downplay the significance of it. It's that question of how does my faith, how does what I believe, how does uh, the, the gospel truth that has, has rescued and redeemed me affect the way that I do my work? Or maybe said another way, how does God's big story of redemption relate to what I do Monday through Friday? This is an important question. Like, does God even care about our work? Does he care about what we do? Is what we do to make a living or the way uh, that we provide for our families, uh, maybe what we're doing just to make ends meet, is, is it really something that is important to God? I remember a few years ago hearing Tim Keller uh, giving a talk at a conference, and, and he, he told this story about a young man in his church who came up and, and asked him a question. And it, it was a question that, that eventually led him to realize just how important it is to think about the way the gospel and what we do uh, mesh together. And this young man comes up to him. He, he had just become a believer, and he says, hey, Dr. Keller, uh, can you disciple me? Dr. Keller looks at him and he starts talking to me and says, well, yeah, I can teach you how to read the Bible. I can show you the importance of living in community, of, of walking out uh, your, your faith uh, day to day. I can, I can show you how to diagram passages and dig in. And, and as they talked a little bit and they pressed a little bit deeper, Dr. Keller said, the man looks at me and says, no, no, no. What I'm asking is, now that I'm a Christian, now that I've come to faith in Christ, he's an actor, what kind of roles can I take? What kind of stories can I actually participate in? Are there ways that I have to start thinking about my job and my role as an actor here in New York City that are gonna cause me to have to live just a little bit differently? That way I can bring glory and honor to the Lord. And what he was asking was how does my Christian faith 
my walk with God come to bear on my career? How does being a disciple of Jesus affect my vocation, the thing that I do? How does this influence the area of my life that consumes the vast majority of my time in any given week? It was a keen observation about his life, specifically about how his life and his new life in Christ needed to mesh together. And it's an observation that I don't know that many of us who maybe have grown up in the church or have been in the church for a while have taken the time to really think deeply about. Have we asked the question, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, what about my faith comes to bear on my work or even on the type of work that I'm doing? What does God-honoring work really look like? Is it to go for broke and sell all that I have and, and become a missionary somewhere overseas? Or, or is it to leave the, the good-paying job that I have working for a, a big firm here in town and begin to work in the local church? Maybe. Probably not. Probably not. God probably hasn't called you to that. More than likely, it's going to be like a conversation that Martin Luther had with a, a guy who was a cobbler and became a Christian back in the 1500s after hearing Martin Luther preach the gospel. And he comes and he says, okay, now that I'm a Christian, what do I do? And he says, well, what do you do? He says, I make shoes. He said, make good shoes. As Christians, honoring God is what we do. It starts with doing good work and doing it well. And so tonight what I want us to see is, is how our faith and our work are connected by looking at the story of our work and placing it in its proper context. Putting it in the place that it is meant to be. Because oftentimes what happens when our, our work is out of whack is it, it's because it's in the wrong context. We're going to set it in the midst of God's big story of creation. We're going to see how sin and the fall distorts that, but how through redemption and restoration, the story that God is weaving throughout history, we're going to see how work plays into that. And we're also going to see the ways in which that sin has distorted work. And we're going to see the ways that we need to combat that distortion. And, and, and then we need to see how the hope that we have of redemption, that we have in Jesus Christ helps us move beyond the distortion of sin and look toward the hope of restoration. So tonight we need to start by seeing the original plot line of the story. We need to see how God intended and intends for work to relate to the rest of life. And so for that, we need context. We need to see how faith connects it to everything that we do. So where did work originally fit in God's plan and God's story for history and for the world? When did work enter into the picture? How did it look? Why did it come about? And it's in the creation narrative that we begin to get uh, this sense of what God intends for work. And it's where we see work first mentioned. And it's mentioned before sin enters the world. 
Immediately after God creates Adam, we we read in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord took the man, took Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Before God says anything to him, before any command has been given, we see God placing work into the story of creation. God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden not to be in this idyllic paradise where he doesn't do anything, but for a purpose, to work and keep the garden. Work was baked into the statement at the end of Genesis 1 that God looks at everything that he's made and says, this is very good. And we have to start here because we have to have a picture of work placed in its proper context because context matters. We have to see that work predates sin. And I think oftentimes we feel like work is a part of the curse. It's a part of sin. But what we see when we dig a little bit deeper is that the word that's used here for work is is the Hebrew word abad, which not only means to work, not only means to to do and, and, and to have this activity, but also means to worship. In the original plot line of God's big narrative, his big story, we see here in Genesis chapter 2 that God places man in the Garden of Eden to work as a form of worship to him. It was never intended to be a means to an end. It was never just about tending the garden. Work was never meant to be an end in and of itself. At creation, work is given to man as a gift from God. And through this work of tending and cultivating the garden, man would be a participant in spreading God's glory and his image throughout the whole earth. That's what's meant in the creation mandate in Genesis 1.28 when God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The way that the earth was to be subdued was through the work of keeping and cultivating this world that God had made. So in Genesis, we get this clear picture that God created work and he did it for his glory and he did it for the grand purpose of, of taking what he had made and not just letting it run wild, but bringing order to it. But because context matters, and, and you and I have to acknowledge that for most of us, work doesn't feel like cultivation. Like it doesn't feel like what, what we imagine when we think of, of cultivating a garden. Like work's not just hard. Like yeah, yeah, gardening's hard work. Farming's hard work. But our work doesn't feel just like hard work. It feels like toil. It feels like burden. It feels like more than that. And so, so often, our work becomes this heavy burden and it consumes us. It takes our time. It takes our energy. It chews us up and it spits us back out. And it leaves us looking at the weekend and looking at our time in the evening and just feeling exhausted. And so if the original plot line, God's purpose for work was good... How did work go from this glorious form of God-honoring worship 
the grinding toll that we see today. And it was the introduction of sin. In Genesis 3, we see that sin comes into the world and it takes what God had created as good and rewarding and it cursed it. The ground, which in creation produced in abundance without even the need for it to be tended to and cared to produce. Just, to, just in order for it to be in order that needed to happen. But, but it just was able to produce in abundance. And now, now it withholds its fruit. In the creation story, work was good, rewarding, and worshipful. But when the fall crashes into the story, work becomes a burden. A burden to each of us, and it seems to each of us often like a vain and pointless pursuit. And so that's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2, 22 and 23 says, What has a man from all the toil, all the work and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation or an aggravation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. He says, this also is vanity. This is pointless. And look, we've experienced this, haven't we? Like if we've lived long enough, if we've worked long enough, we've experienced this feeling of, I, I just can't get out from under the burden of what I do. Like Solomon's words here probably describe seasons, if not the, the majority of your work, a striving wholeheartedly under the sun, working nine to five, putting in 20 hours of overtime each and every week, yet the bills still pile up. And the money never seems to go far enough. We never get ahead. Work becomes this source of, of aggravation, of stress, not only during business hours. No, we, we take it home with us. Like at night, we, we don't rest, we don't sleep. Our, our minds are constantly on what we have to do tomorrow or, or what we failed to do today. That billing report that needs to be sent out, the maintenance log that didn't get filed, the, the pink slip that you got to hand out in the morning. And so with Solomon, we, we cry out, all of this is vanity. All of this is meaningless. It's pointless. What's the point? How does any of it bring glory to God? How is any of it supposed to be worship? How does any of this make a difference in the world? And it's at this point that what we've seen in God's plan for creation and, and how we've seen sin's curse on work, it's at this point that we have to place it in the center of God's story. And we're going to do that here in just a moment. But before we do that, I, I want to look at two things that I think are really important. And it's, it's two sinful responses that you and I have a tendency toward in regards to work. Before we begin to look at, at, at placing our work in God's story, we need to look at the way that sin has distorted work for us so that we don't live with this kind of out of whack, out of balance relationship to work, but we're able to do it in such a way that it brings honor to God. Because of the fall, we all at times have a tendency to view our work in the wrong context. 
Instead of placing our work in God's big story, we view work through the sin-stained and cracked lenses of our hearts. And there isn't an area of our life that doesn't become clouded by the sinfulness of our hearts. And that includes our work. So the first sinful response that we have to work, that we see wreaking havoc in our world and in our work, is that of idolatry. We all have certain tendencies. We all have certain bents in our hearts that, that make idols out of various things. Calvin famously said that, that the human heart is an idol factory, that every one of us from our mother's womb has been experts at making idols. And an idol's not just a, a little statue sitting up on a shelf. It's, it's not just uh, something that primitive man had to deal with. Idolatry is something that each and every one of us has to wrestle with because idolatry at its root is anything that takes the ultimate place of authority in your life. Oftentimes, idols are good things given to us by God that we take and make into gods for ourselves. For many of us, work has become an idol in our lives. Because we failed to connect the story of our work with God's story, our work hasn't been put in its proper context, and that means that your work, it ceases to be about, or it never becomes about, cultivating the world in which God has given you to live and worshiping Him, expanding His kingdom, building His kingdom. And that's how we make work an idol. So we begin to see the effects of this idolatry in, in various places of our life. Our, our family begins to be neglected, as we spend more and more time at the office, later and later trying to get ahead, trying to reach that next big bonus or that, that next big promotion. Success or a bigger nest egg becomes the goal. And if I can just climb one more rung of the ladder, then I know that I'll be set, then I know that I'll be happy. And, and, and when you do, there's just something else that you have to reach for and you have to go for and strive for. When work ceases to be about the goal of making much of Jesus and it becomes the end in and of itself, your work is an idol. And Jesus makes, makes a really good point on this in, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And what he's saying is, whatever it is that captivates your heart the most, it has become your treasure. It has become your God. He's not talking about giving here. He's not about to take up an offering in the Sermon on the Mount as he's talking about treasure. What he's doing is he's warning his hearers and he's warning us tonight about what happens when we take good things like money, like success, like our work, and we make them ultimate things. 
When the good work that God has given you becomes an ultimate thing in your life, it won't be long before it becomes something that is just crashing in around you and crushing you. Because your work makes a terrible God and it can't hold the weight of your world on its shoulders. It'll never work. It'll never happen. Another indicator that you've made work your your functional savior, you've, you've made work your God, is if you're constantly allowing what you do to be the thing that defines you. I mean, this, this happens, we can see this as, as subtly as every conversation that we ever have with anyone. Maybe a conversation we had here tonight. Hi, how are you? What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And if work is our God, if it's become our idol, if it's this thing that, that we look to for meaning and for purpose, that question is a lot less about getting to know someone else, and it's a lot more about sizing up the competition. Like if work is my God, when I ask that question, the subtext is I need to see what you do so I can compare what I do and see how I measure up. And if work is my God, then I'm either going to be bolstered in my feelings about myself or I'm going to be crippled. Another way that we see this, we, we see work becoming our identity, is embedded in, in how we view our performance. And so if we're doing well at work, everything is good, but the second that, that our supervisor comes in and they say, hey, uh, you need to do this just a little bit differently and you need to tweak this here, we get defensive. We begin to kind of pedal back a little bit and we, we wonder, man, is, is there something wrong with me? And it's even worse if that criticism that's leveled against us, if, if we can see it too. Like if I make a mistake and, and, and the criticism that comes my way, it's not based on somebody else's subjective opinion. Somebody's saying, well, I would have done it this way, but it, it's, it's based on something that I can look at and I can go, yep, nope, I screwed that up too. Man, I'm going to be so crushed. I'm going to be so fragile, I'm going to be unable to, to handle this because it's not that I'm just having a, something that I do pointed out as being wrong. My entire identity, my entire meaning is wrapped up in this function of my life. And so to criticize my work is to launch an attack on my very self. And so we can see where idolatry has set in. What, what Jesus says is that where your treasure is, there your heart is too. And so what's the thing that you value the most? Whatever that is, that's what you worship. Where's your treasure? Where's your hope? Your worth? Where is it found? There's another sinful tendency that we have when it comes to work. There's this pendulum swing to the complete opposite side. And I think right now in culture, that's kind of where we're at, is on this pendulum swing to this other side. And it's not idolatry of work in so much as it is an idleness in our work. I want to be careful with that. I don't want us to look and go, well, I'm, I'm not dealing with idleness in work because I'm not lazy. Like, I do my job. I get stuff done. Idleness in work is far more insidious and it's far more subtle than just laziness. 
If we want to think about idleness in work, we need to think about it more like this. Um, when, when we turn our car on, but we leave it in park, right, we call that idling. But as long as it's on and it's in park and, and it's not shifted into gear, there's all this potential, but there's nothing actually taking place. And a car that just spends its entire time running in idle is pointless because it's designed to be going somewhere. And eventually, if all you do is idle your car, that thing's going to break down because it's meant to move. It's meant to be in motion. And so as we think about idleness in our work, idleness in our work shows, shows up not just as laziness, but it shows up as looking at our work and viewing it as pointless. If the tendency to place too much value on our work is idolatry, then idleness is looking at our work as lacking any significant value. It's not being something worth our time, not being worth connecting God's big story to. And at their core, idolatry of work and idleness in work have the same root problem. It's a failure to connect God's story for our work to what it is that we're doing. And where idolatry leads us to see work as having this kind of ultimate importance, idleness in work leads us to see our work as having little to no importance in God's story. However, this kind of thinking is just as sinful as turning work into our God. And so the Apostle Paul points it out in 2 Thessalonians 3 when he says, uh, he's talking to them, he's talking about how he acted in front of them, and he says, hey, be an imitator of me. For even when we were with you, you would, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Like I said earlier, you can be idle in your work and not be a lazy person because idleness doesn't mean just inactivity or even a lack of productivity in your work, most of the time, idleness is an inactivity of the heart or an inability or unwillingness to see or embrace God's purpose in work that he's given to us to do right now. And the Bible not only warns us about the sin of, not do, or, or, or of doing nothing, we saw that in second. Thessalonians 3 a second ago, but also about the problem of simply just doing something aimlessly, without purpose, without connecting it to God's purpose. Like, not only are we to do our work, but we are to go a step further, Paul says, and work with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And so if work is merely becomes a means to an end for you, and that end being just paying the bills putting some food on the table and being able to kind of maintain a comfortable lifestyle, then you might have become idle in your work, which is just as much of a problem as looking at your work as a source of satisfaction, as your God. Has your work become a total frustration to you? Can you say with Solomon more and more each day that, that your work has become this aggravation Listen, when we recognize 
that satisfaction and purpose are not inherent or even promised, but they come as gifts from God, the frustration that we experience at work shouldn't lead us to discouragement. No, it simply reminds us that our work isn't ultimate. It's not our God. We shouldn't let it become our ultimate satisfaction. However, I think the most devastating way that we see idleness creep into the Christian life and being played out is when work becomes divorce from discipleship. This is what the young man in Tim Keller's story from the very beginning was getting at. This is what he began to take notice of. Our work is a tool that God intends to use for our sanctification. And God wants to take your work and he wants to use it to make you more like Jesus. And he wants to use you to help the gospel flourish in the places that you find yourself. And so God is still working on your heart and he's making you more like him when you're, if you're a doctor checking on a patient, when you're talking to customers on the phone, when you're driving a nail or like I was the other day when I was building a fence and put a drill right through my thumb, right? In that moment, I discovered just how sanctified I was and it wasn't pretty. When you're driving the company car to lunch, like you're being set up with these little moments each and every day for choosing to become more like Jesus or to give into your flesh. And God has so strategically placed you where you are in your context to make his name known and great. And so the way that you speak and the way you react and the way that you engage at after hours drinks with your coworkers or at the company Christmas party, that's going to be showing people whether you're just like everyone else or there's something fundamentally different about you that's a byproduct of the discipleship that God is working in your heart. And if we disconnect work from the gospel and from God's story, what people are going to see when they look at us is this disjointed and disconnected life. Idleness in work leads to an anemic and emaciated discipleship in our work lives. And it's just as sinful as idolatry because it comes from a belief that God doesn't care about what we do. When in fact, it's a gift that he's given us to bring glory to him and see his kingdom expand and flourish in all the world. And so here's the point. When we see God's story and how our work fits into that story, what it does is it reveals to us that all good work is God's work. I say all good work because obviously there's some things that just aren't good, right? I don't think you can make a case from Scripture that being a hit man is something that brings glory and honor to God, right? It's not good work. There's also certain practices within things that maybe by nature are, are neutral or could be good that become unethical, and so that's not good work. But what we see here in Scripture is that there's a sense in which um, all good work is God's work. So whether you're a night assistant at Quick Trip, a, a doctor, a carpenter, an insurance salesman, a lawyer, as you're doing your job and you do it well, you're partaking in God's continued creation and sustaining of what he's made. 
You see, it's at this point that the gospel begins to come into view in relation to the way that we look at what we do, the way that we look at our work. The gospel is, is this entire story of God's work in the world from creation through the midst of the fall, now in redemption and restoration. And as Christians, what we find ourselves in is the middle of God's story. And we find ourselves there when we recognize that through the redemption of our souls in Jesus Christ, God is using us to redeem and restore the broken world around us. Your work matters. I want to take a moment to, to touch on this one thing here too. Um, your vocation, what you do, what God has called you to in this season of your life, or maybe for all of your life, might not bring you income. Like if you're retired, there is still work for you to be done that God still has for you. If, if you're a homemaker, like God is using you. He's using you. He's discipling you. He's helping you raise your kids. He's, he's giving you an opportunity to work where you are. If you're retired, you still have an opportunity. Even though your earning days might be behind you, God has still called you to the work of serving his kingdom. And believe me, those of us in our 20s and in our 30s, we desperately need saints who have spent decades working and living out their faith, showing us how to faithfully serve the Lord when the pressures of life mount. You see, the gospel reveals to us the way in which we can work and do so in a way that brings glory to God because it places our work in the right context. And so Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, what we read at the beginning, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. How does our work connect to God's big story? It's here. When we see our work in light of the gospel, then we'll see it like this. Everything that we do, we do as for the Lord and not for men. And so even if your boss is a jerk, you aren't working for your boss. Yeah, you might get a promotion by putting in an extra 20 hours of overtime each week, but neglecting your family isn't gonna be worth it. Failing to enter into rest that God has commanded you to enter into isn't gonna be worth it. You're serving Jesus, not your job. And you can do your job well. In fact, you do your job the way that it's intended when you recognize that you are serving Jesus. And so what context are you placing the story of your work in? I'm going to close here. What, what's the proper response to God's story of work? His design for your work, his placing you where you currently find yourself. Where do you see yourself right now? Is, is your job just a dead end with a bunch of deadbeats that you could care less about? Or is it a place where you can make much of Jesus? But the idleness that we all face sometimes. Author Sebastian Traeger in his book, The Gospel at Work, says it so well. He says, don't resent work too deeply. 
is you find yourself in a place that you'd rather not be. This is where the king has deployed you. And he has reasons for doing so. Or has your job become the place of your ultimate satisfaction and joy? Do you run to work and hide yourself away for hours because it's what gives you the greatest sense of self-worth? Has your identity been consumed by your work? But the idolater in each and every one of us, don't allow work to consume you so much that it becomes your ultimate prize and possession. Your reward is eternal and your work is temporal. God's intention for work in creation was for it to be a joyful expression of our worship to him. It was meant to be done with ease and constant fellowship. Now we know that sin has busted that, shattering it to a million pieces, but we find ourselves right now in this amazing side of history, literally caught in the middle of the redemption of the world and the ultimate restoration of all things through the power of Jesus Christ. Have you placed yourself in the middle of this amazing story? Have you found yourself stirred by the idea that God is using you as his agent for redemption and restoration in the fallen and broken world around you by the things that you do? My prayer for us tonight is that we would each look at what the Lord has given us to do and we would do it with all our might, not for ourselves, not for our boss, but that we would do it for God's glory, cultivating the garden of his world until Jesus comes. Let's pray.